is the West Side King's Church podcast, where we aim to encounter and embody the surprising grace of Jesus. So this is part two of our conversation around uh, Rich Fiodesi's book, The Deeply Formed Life. Uh, we talked last week a little bit about it with Tyson and I, and we had uh, we had Rich join us uh, remotely in that sense, just to chat through some of his experiences about why he wrote the book. And one of the things that really captured me in the book was the priority that he put on issues of race and reconciliation. Um, and you maybe heard Tyson and I in the interview with Rich talk about how several of the issues in the book, which kind of get treated as secondary issues toward when it comes to issues of discipleship, Rich took and put as primary issues. And I found that hugely liberating. Like his opening line in the chapter on racial reconciliation for a divided world, he says, the real question of discipleship, of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ? but can I be your brother-in-law? And he then says, I first heard this statement in a seminary class. Who can't your child marry? Why do you feel, un- who do you feel uneasy about having in your home? And these questions that get down to the sort of roots of our, uh, of our own racial uh, issues and our own complexities. Now then, as, as somebody who is very much a newcomer to Canada, then learning as I've been here about the, the racial reconciliation needs of our own country, uh, if you'll permit me to talk about it as our country, uh, I'm happy for you to, you know, let me know that I'm not allowed to say that just yet. But, but the question of, of where do we go dealing with our own history and our own issues of reconciliation and our own relationships around issues of race and, and difference, I found it really, really enlightening when, when I was reading Richie's book to say that these are things which are gospel-centered issues. I've always believed that they're huge issues for the gospel and central issues, and I found huge solidarity in, in hearing somebody put it so primarily within a book on Christian discipleship. So I wanted to focus on that for our second part of the conversation. I think it's both timely for us as Christians in, in Canada predominantly uh, as, as we are, but also important for us as a Christian community to think about. So that brings me then to introduce Holly, who is uh, here with me uh, today. Now, Holly is one of these people that as a pastor, you have immense privilege of bumping into just at the back of your church one day, which I think is how Holly and I met. And uh, and we just started chatting. And uh, Holly was here at the very, very first Westside King's Church service ever. So she's in that, that, that select group of a few hundred people that were here on day one. And, uh, and you're still with us 25 years later, uh, although we're talking to you today from the USA, <laughs> I believe. Um, but Holly, uh, I, I, I promised Holly I wasn't going to give her a huge introduction, but would let her introduce herself because we've both been in those situations where people give you a big introduction and you find yourself listening to it thinking, this person sounds amazing. Uh, and then you realize, oh, it's me. Uh, and uh, I could say a lot of brilliant things about Holly. I, I'd love her to introduce herself a little because she has uh, a lot more uh, ability to be accurate in that. But Holly has... Uh, has really helped me uh, in in many ways, just guiding me towards a, a growing understanding and a growing learning base regarding the issues of of reconciliation and indigenous awareness w- within Canada. So when it came to this conversation, I was just thinking to myself, I've got to get Holly somehow into this conversation to guide us and and help us. Uh, so Holly, welcome. Uh, it's Thank great to you. have you with us this evening. Oh, Pastor David Harvey. Well, I'm glad that we had the long conversation yesterday because we got over the excitement that we're here we are <laughs> together. So we had that. We've done with, you know, we're just happy to be um, having this conversation, you know? Yeah. Totally. totally. So, so Holly, so you are, um, you have been at Westside for, for a lot of years. Um, 
tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Perhaps some of our uh, our, our, our people that are with us uh, today are might have seen you on television recently. Uh, you were you were bouncing your way around a lot of my social media channels. I kept turning on, and somebody else is posting interviews of you from from TV interviews. So tell us a little bit about about what it is you do and and uh, a little bit about yourself. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Let's dive in. Um, well, I have to say. Um, you know, um, it's proper protocol whenever we start off a meeting to do a land acknowledgement. Mm. And, you know, because the word Canada, uh, Kanata is a Cree word, which means clean and pure. And Canada is a Mohawk word, which means our home. And, you know, we are very diverse as the first people coast to coast to coast. Um, and the reason for the diversity is because we live totally off the land, all of our food, shelter, clothing, tools, toys, medicines, everything came from the land. So all of Canada is traditional territory for the first people. Mm. And so, you know, that's why it's always proper protocol, because, you know, Canada has been here for a few hundred years, but we have been here for time immemorial. We believe that our people are the original people and then we have been placed here by creator. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm doing a, um, I'm a film producer as well. And so I'm doing a um, film that's going to be played at the Arctic Winter Games. So as the land acknowledgement is being spoken, there's a visual of the land. So I really love to think of when we're doing a land acknowledgement, it's just not this little ritual that we do, but we actually think of the land where we now work, live and play mm -hmm. that, you know, who has been here. So where I'm, I'm, you know, speaking from today, I'm on the traditional territory of the Paiute people of Southern Nevada. Mm -hmm. And I am in awe of the Paiute people because I think of, you know, I go out to the desert, there's not an abundance of flora and fauna, you know, there's, um, how did they live here in these extreme temperatures it's so hot right now and i'm in air conditioning but um i'm thinking of you know it's incredible so i was in the grocery store and i met this man and uh you know he i could tell he was native and i was like hey bro <laughs> you know i see another native and uh, we started talking and he's his name is phil he's apache and i started talking i was like how did your people live here like you even more so how did your people live on this territory and he goes what about your people living in the snow in northern alberta like i do not know how you guys lived up there because i am from fort mckay first nation and my community is in northern alberta and my mother spent the first six years of her life living entirely off the land there wasn't a store um, that she didn't speak a word of English and you know they lived entirely off the land and so I just love when we do land acknowledgements and we just think of of who are um, the people that lived here for time immemorial where we you know do our business where we do our um, homes where we you know play and and uh, I love doing that Mm, yeah, that's and and so so actually, I almost want to ask you a question about that because you made a, a little comment in there. So I have been in context where land acknowledgements are given, and it does feel like, and forgive me, you, you know, it feels like oh, we've got to do this, so we're just going to do it <laughs> yeah, really quickly. Yeah. Um, and and then I've also been in context where I, I find that wow, that's a really heartfelt and thoughtful sort of word that has been given there. Now, where <laughs> you know how does it feel for you when you because you must hear that even more than i hear that like that kind of you said just there we don't want to just do it as a ritual but to actually pause and spend some time and think about what we're where we are and what we're doing yeah i did some research on that because i was like you know um i asked some friends like what does a land acknowledgement mean to you as an indigenous person and it was really you know um people saying i see you i acknowledge mm -hmm you're here so it's a step in the right direction where we're we're not just like stumbling you know through our nation going you know we were forgetting about that mm -hmm. that this is somebody's home for time immemorial um 
you know, we actually um, have scientific evidence all the way from Arctic to Antarctica that we have been here for 30,000 years. Now, um, you know, there's different theories about how we got here. The most common thought is that we came across a land bridge across the Bering Strait. So that would mean there were of Asian descent, or maybe Asians started here and went that way. But we do <laughs> know that there is that scientific evidence. And we also know that we have origin stories of how we were created here. Um, and that, you know, creator put us on this land for this time. Um, and we are the original people here. So one of the stories is where we call present day North America, which is Canada, the United States, we call it Turtle Island. So whenever you hear the reference to Turtle Island, it's an indigenous thought towards um, North America. And so I like when we take those pauses as maybe as mundane or ritual as it, at least we're doing that. I like when there's a little bit more personality and effort into it. Um, I love when Canadians like, like to lean into the conversation, like, um, you know, when I think of it, when Europeans first came over across the pond to Turtle Island, they couldn't live in one of the harshest countries in the world without assistance. It was, you know, the First Nation people that were like, you know what, friend, you need to change your shoes and your clothing. You're going to get sick. And if you get sick, all the medicines come from the land. And, you know, here's your food sources. So Europeans depended on First Nations. Mm -hmm. So let's repeat that again. Europeans depended on First Nations, and that's the original relationship. And I think that, um, you know, I have a lot of interviews and people ask me a lot of times, like, what's the relationship with, with Indigenous people in the government, Canada Day, singing the national anthem? And I was like, it's severed. Honestly, mm -hmm. it is so, we have a harsh relationship. Um, and I know that a lot of us don't celebrate. And it's funny because we changed the lyrics of O Canada. We say, O Canada, our home on native land. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you can just do that too. But, you know, like we have, but I wish that every Indigenous person had a great opportunity like I have to spend days with people like yourselves mm -hmm. and the people on this call because I'm hopeful. We've turned a corner. We honestly have, I see it. Um, today I did a, a big seminar for a whole bunch of people. Yesterday it was 300 lawyers out of Montreal and New York. And, um, and it's just amazing that people are leaning into the conversation. They're like, I really wanna know um, about our first people. I wanna learn about the true history of indigenous people in Canada, mm. and I wanna learn how we can move forward. And so I do have a business um, that facilitates workshops of indigenous awareness so that I can you know, help um, people like you know, industry, government, businesses, agencies, first responders, all sorts of organizations in those efforts. And then also I'm a filmmaker because film, has a far reach. Like I'm teaching some people here, but the film we can just keep playing on over and over and over again, right? Yes. yes. And so that's why film's important. Yeah, no, that's and I've seen some of the work that you've done and it's 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 phenomenal. And uh I, I really appreciate yeah. all of the interactions. I feel like I am um, I maybe uh, get lazy in, in in my sort of work sometimes because I could just reach out to you and say, Holly, what about this? And tell me, tell, what do you think anytime. about that? Anytime, you are welcome anytime, friend. And so, so for me, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me in this in this journey, I arrived in Canada having just completed a PhD in Galatians. And one of the things that is really central to the theology of Galatians is this idea, which I, which is of the equality of all people. You know, so Paul, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek or slave or free or male and female, but we're all one in Christ. So there's this drive within the Gospels. Like, I, so I find myself drawn whenever, whenever people speak about reconciliation, when they speak about, you know, bringing people to a place of equality, it always ticks within me, hopefully as a human, but also as a, as a Bible scholar that goes, yes, that's what Jesus is talking about. And so there's a line in Richie's book where he says, the gospel we proclaim must be big enough to engage the realities of racial fragmentation, right? So, oh, so good. which is beautiful. I, I, I love that thought. But now what's interesting to me is that when we come to talk about the relationship, so you talked about, you know, what's the relationship 
with the government? What's the relationship with, you know, and it's severed. But of course, one of the challenging things, it seems to me, within the relationship between Indigenous people in Canada and you know, Europeans or settlers is the church has brought a lot of complexities into this. So, so we don't, the church don't come into this conversation neutral. Uh, you know, the church actually would be, would I be right to say perceived as the perpetrators of a lot of the, the damage and, and, and difficulty to a relationship which started as one of dependency and became one of, uh, you know, one of abuse and, uh, and you know segregation and all of these sorts of things. So, so for me, what I then love whenever I have conversations about with you is is your hopefulness as as an indigenous person and a Christian who who has somehow navigated this with incredible grace. I think. Uh, so, I'd love for you to chat a little bit about that, if you if you would, Holly, because you know your yeah. first comment talked about government relations and all that. But but talk a little bit for a group of us in a, in a church conversation. You know, where, where do you see the role of the church? Because we can talk about the theological role of the church, which to me is very much it's call, a call to reconciliation. But when we get down onto the ground, this is, some, this is some difficult places to navigate, isn't it? It really is. And you know what? My heart just exploded when you asked that. Like, I just thought, well, the conversation that we had yesterday, um, I remember asking you, like, why are you so cool? Like, why are you so conscious and, and interested in this? And um, like, I've been a Christian since 1982. So that's like, math is hard, like 127 years. I've been a Christian a long time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and honestly, um, you're the first pastor that has ever said, let's have a conversation about this ever. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's also sad, but I'm yeah. just so, yeah. I'm yeah. just so thankful to you. I honestly have, you've led this with such grace. I, I love the series that you did um, this winter with um, Rich. And by the way, you should have put me before him. Cause he's like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> It's hard act to follow after hearing. <laughs> I mean, I was like searching words when he's talking. He's so brilliant, you know, and I just really loved his book. I love the conversation. And um, but you know, when I became a Christian, it's really interesting because um it was almost like the church said either or mm. you're an indigenous person or a Christian, you cannot be a first nation person and a Christian. You have it's like opposing sides. And that didn't sit right with me. Mm. I was like, you know, I was reading the Bible and it was saying the opposite that I could embrace, you know, because the church has been really ethnocentric and that's a belief or assumption that your social or cultural group is superior. And so we don't do, um, you know, there is no beauty or justice when we wrap the gospel in European culture, because we're missing out on all this, you know, and, you know, it was really interesting. I was, um, you know, even, it, it's even hard to talk about, but when I was first in the church for many years, people tried to cast out demons out of me, you know, saying that I had generational curses, that my origin was, um, you know, demonic or witchcraft or, you know, and it was just, it just surprising to me that I am still in the church because mm -hmm. I found such comfort in my relationship with God. I found such comfort in reading scripture and studying the works of God. It just resonated so much with me, but, you know, I was not raised that way because like I mentioned a moment ago, my mom spent the first six years of her life being totally loved in a beautiful situation, in a family group, living traditionally. Um, but when she was six years old, the RCMP came to her community and it was Christmas time and the river was frozen. They came by dog team and they took her by force and her two little sisters and they were kicking and screaming and they took them and the community, um, 
was so shocked. My mother was six, my auntie was eight, the little auntie was four, and the three little girls left and they never saw them again. And they had no idea where they went. And my, this old man told me, he said, you know, I was there when your mom was stolen and I watched. And when they left, the whole community cried for days. The grief was enormous. I can't imagine, I'm a parent. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine someone coming to the door and knocking on the door and taking my children. And then they were instructed, if you ever see anybody coming down the river, um, again, you kids got to run and hide. So do you see that, how the anger and hurt built up? Mm. Well, my mom spent 13 years at Gurard Indian Residential School. She had no idea where home was. Home had no idea what that. And my mom experienced neglect and abuse. And the stories that we hear that come out of residential school are true. Um, of the neglect and abuse. And it was run by the Roman Catholic Church. There was no teachers. Um, it was mostly, you know, um, domestic duties and learning about the Catholic faith and the rituals of that. But when my mom turned 18, her funding ran out. So they put her on a bus and her ticket took her to Edmonton. She had never been out of that little compound of the mission school. She gets off on the streets of Edmonton. Well, of course, there's predators waiting. The RCMP were charging them with vagrancy. Vagrancy means they have no job, no home. Um, you know, they, um, they don't have money to pay for their fines. They don't understand the court system. And my mom said, you know, residential school was tough, but getting dropped off on the streets was really a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And they call them survivors because 50% of the children got taken, never made it back home. And if you survive, 90% of, of survivors ended up with a mental illness, depression, anxiety, addictions to more severe forms. So, you know, this is an ancient history. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. And so, you know, we are impacted, all of us are impacted by this story. And so I think the whole nation was grieving a couple of weeks ago when we heard about the 215 children, mm. some as young as three years old that were found in an unmarked grave. But we were not surprised. Um, we know that when they destroyed my mom's residential school, there was baby bones found underneath there. And so I grew up thinking, you know, the church, is the oppressor, they're, they're against Indigenous people. And, you know, you know, when we think of it, um, despite five, you know, and missiologists will, will agree on this, despite 500 years of missionary work, only two to 5% of Indigenous people are um, followers of Jesus, hmm. because the church was the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So as a church, we have to do differently. We mm -hmm. have to um, think differently. We have to work towards reconciliation in mm -hmm. that reconciliation, right? And I know that's a hard truth. Um, I, I know that it's, it's hard to hear this stuff because we've been really negligent in Canada on sharing these stories. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Canada, you probably heard that even before you came here, Canada's nice. <laughs> this maybe shows we're not so nice, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that, you know, the church has got to do different. It's got to be, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that, I mean, it's such a, it's such a sobering story Holly and I'm sure anyone listening just you know my daughter's nine and I just can't even imagine what it'd be like to just be sat one day and somebody come in and take her and them have the legal power to do that and, and never to see her again and and I think for us there's an ability sometimes to almost abstract ourselves from these stories and you know, all these are things that happened a long time ago and we didn't know any better but but there's both the journey of actually it wasn't really a long time ago and then there's there's the journey of and how do we put that back together and and i'm finding as i'm learning like it was just uh, on a i saw you on that uh, television interview a few weeks ago it was the first time that i had heard that these residential schools didn't have any 
teachers. And I find myself thinking, why do we even call them schools? <laughs> like, and I know that's a really small thing in the grand scheme of things, but but I wonder how many people even realize that that actually this this wasn't education in the way that we would understand it. This would like it seems to me like it was an attempt to deprogram people to 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 change them. And 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 so it strikes me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the challenge for us then as Christians is generally speaking, when a person becomes a Christian, the sort of message that they get from the church is, oh, well, hey, you know, if you're a, a, you know, a classic settler, it's great that you're now a Christian. So this means you come to church on Sunday and, you know, you uh, maybe do some things that you used to not do and you don't do some things that you used to do. Right? But very rarely will anybody talk to you about your culture, your dress code, your language, your, you know, these are things that you can just carry on doing. Whereas it's the, the history you're explaining for an indigenous person who decides I'd like to follow Jesus is there's a, there's a new set of rules begin to appear, which is why you also, you've got to stop being like you were, you know, to hear, um, you know, to hear you say that, that people were attempting to cast demons out of you just because you were an indigenous lady is, is, you know, I don't even know what to say about that, Holly, but it, it's 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 so sad because it's so because crazy. it's so wrong. It is, it is, and you know, I think that um, when I think of you know people saying, "Well, that was a long time ago," and I had nothing to do with it, you know, I just the Bible tells us over and over again um, that you know, if one part of the body hurts, mm. then we all hurt. And if we respond in any way other than compassion or love to people that are hurting, that are struggling to the issues, mm. then we have to, you know, really look at our faith and, and we have to take that approach. Like, I, I think I need to do a shift. Mm. I think that I need to, you know, take a, a different look at it for sure. One of the, um, one of my favorite uh, kind of thinkers about Paul and, and, and issues around the gospel in the New Testament is a recently recently uh, passed away Ghanaian scholar called Lamin Sané. And, and, and what Sané did brilliantly in a lot of his work was, was pointed out how the gospel was a, was a message without language. Right? And so what Sané noticed was that a lot of the religions of the world required levels of cultural assimilation. Uh, so if you wanted to be, and let me not pick on any religions in that sense, but if you wanted to be this particular religion, here's the language you have to learn, here's the cultures you have to adopt here, you know, and so to become this religion, you start to dress differently, speak different languages. And he says, and what Sene found fascinating about Christianity is it Christianity works in any language and doesn't have what does a christian dress like nobody knows what language does a christian need to speak doesn't matter you can say god in any language the earliest christians very quickly started translating documents so that you didn't have to step towards them and all of this came out of paul's work in the new testament where the big issue is jews and gentiles and the jewish people wanting the gentiles to culturally assimilate to their version of christianity you know, in Ephesians, Paul says, no, no, if there was a wall, Jesus has knocked it down. And he's brought Gentiles close as Gentiles, not as Jews. And Galatians is about the same sort of thing. And in first, Second Corinthians, and this is what just strikes me as interesting, is that Paul then turns to the church there and says, oh, and not only has God brought us all together, he then has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Uh, and so, so, so this is one of the calls of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. And now it's easy for us to spiritualize that and say, well, that's just about us and God. But actually, Paul's talking about us and God and us and our fellow humans that, that, that are called to reconcile. So when I'm, when I'm listening to you talk, I, I can't help but think of, of a scholar like Sinair pointing out that it's unnecessary to, to get involved in cultural assimilation when you when you teach the gospel because the gospel will meet people wherever they are you know yes. Jesus Jesus came to us as a Jewish rabbi 
Why? Because he was born in Israel, and and that was a way that you could teach well, as if you came in that way. He didn't ask people to adopt a way of understanding him, but but he, you know, he just fitted in the culture he was in. So I, I suppose my question for you is: so you spend a lot of time as a an educator, as somebody who helps raise awareness. You're you're talking to. Uh, a, a group of people in a church context as a Christian, and then I want to say, and forgive me if this sounds patronizing, Holly, like I, 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 as a pastor, I talk to a lot of people who walk away from faith and walk away from the church. And I think I could say most of them won't have even close to the volume of excuses that you would have to walk away from faith in the church. And yet here you are, you know, longtime member of our church, uh, Christianity that, that goes beyond that. And I'm sure all of us listening, and please, I don't want this to sound patronizing, but wow would be some of our thoughts because you, you could be totally forgiven, like, you know, for going, wait a minute, I, I'm not having anything to do with this. So with that in mind of, of your journey, Paul's encouragement of a ministry of reconciliation, how would you help us as a group of Christians who are interested in living out the gospel and aware of the fact that the, the, for us to live out the gospel in Canada today, we need to think about the damage that has been done in the name of the gospel, but then also just the damage that has been done you know, in, in, in this nation in that sense. Would you have you know, I'm asking you at some level to tap into the training that you do on a regular basis and sort of what are the sort of things that you would guide us as individuals to start thinking about? And and that yeah. can be really practical if you want or very theoretical uh, and even simple things. Like I find myself, uh, I know that I've talked to you about this before, just even wanting to be careful around language that I use because I, I realize that I hear language and realize, well, that can't be the right thing to say, and but not sure how to talk and then worrying about saying anything. So yeah, can, can I ask you just to sort of give us some, if you feel comfortable doing that, some sort of guidance I on- I love it. Well, first of all, I wanna say that, you know, um, I love what you just said about, you know, um, that scholar and mm. about reconciliation. And, you know, reconciliation is a buzzword mm. uh, in Canada right now, because what happened was there was three commissioners that went across Canada and um, they took a team and they listened to 7,000 survivor stories. Could you imagine start to yeah. finish? Wow. The enormous task of that. And they compiled a report and, you know, I'm just in awe of them. When, when Senator Murray Sinclair submitted the report, he went, here, Canada, here's the report. Now let's be friends. And I echo that sentiment. And, you know, for one thing, I think um, our people have gone through so much. I mean, I think of the stories that I've carried, the negative experiences that I've carried, um, as an Indigenous woman, um, the whole issue with the murder of missing Indigenous women and girls were a vulnerable demographic where, you know, the numbers of disproportional rate of us experience a violent episode. Like there's just so much that we carry and we have a lot of hurt and a lot of anger. And, you know, despite everything that we went through, and I was talking about this recently with um, my daughter, because we were talking about my daughter is an Indigenous lawyer. Um, she goes to Westside too. And, you know, we were talking about how many really like amazing Indigenous people I know that we know and th the great success we have, how kind we are, how generous we are, how um, full of fun and laughter despite everything that we've gone through that's who we are and it's just amazing to me and i really i really think the root of that is because it's very rare that you meet an indigenous person who's an atheist we have a really strong connection to creator because of our connection to creation in all of our languages we have a word that says creator and so in cree it's kichimanitu which means um the great 
spirit. Um, and so we have that connection. And so I feel that we have, you know, that relationship with God already. We're coming in uh, where you don't have to say, you know, there is a God. We're like, we know, we know for time immemorial that there's a God. But when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission submitted the report, I was at the unpacking. I know all the stories. Um, and I've, I know too many stories. And um, for one person to hold, I think, I'm not sounding like a victim or anything, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of stories that are really hard to take. But within that, you know, people are like, okay, how do I do it? How do I do reconciliation? And I would say, let's all start saying by reconciliation starts with me. And um, the part of that report says the truth and reconciliation. So there's a truth. So how do you learn that? Well, read books. If you, you know, wherever you get your books, type in keywords, Amazon, Indigo, wherever it may be, and type up keywords and pull up books and start doing the research yourself or podcasts or audiobooks, whatever is more um, works for you. I would say I have a stack of books here because I'm teaching um, from here, but um, I would say most Canadians don't know about the Indian Act. This is a really good reference. It's 21 things you may not know about the Indian Act. Um, we can put all these books in the link. Um, and this talks about this, the, the Canadian Indian Act was created in 1876. And what it did is it separated Canada from us. So we were totally separate. And then we have a government department. We're the only ethnicity that has a government department. And there was all these rules under there. And Canadians don't know how oppressive that was. Mm. So I think if Canadians understood this, this would be um, a real benefit. And then there's some, um, this book is my new favorite. It's called Indigenous Rights by Chelsea Vowell. I love that her last name is Vowell and she's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's tons of footnotes after every chapter. It's really, you can stay in there forever. And the other thing is listen to our music. You know, we have great music, whatever your genre is. Um, watch our films. I, um, you know, I grew up in the old days when there was cowboy and Indians and we were seen as a villain and circle mm -hmm. the wagon, little scalp, you know, the innocent people. And that created a lot of unconscious biases in people. And people were, I experienced racism where people were like, you savages, or what are you gonna do, scalp us? And, mm -hmm. you know, like people, um, we're quite racist because of those movies. Mm -hmm. And I love now that I can work in movies. I've been an, even a native advisor on film where if there's anything historical, uh, inaccurate or culturally offensive, we make revisions. And so watch those films. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is what I do and I love to do is, and I suggest is go to museums and cultural sites that's how I'm learning about the Paiute people in the desert. That's how when I travel, I always at tack on an extra day um, to find out whose traditional territory I am on and learn about the people. And the other thing is buy our art, um, wear it, display it, use it. But the rule with art is buy from inspired indigenous, not indigenous inspired. Therefore you are appreciating culture, not appropriating culture, right? Mm. And the other thing is, you know, we have this harsh history, we have historical trauma, but let's not focus on that because whatever we focus on gets bigger. And so let's look at indigenous success. You know, we have amazing artists, business people, politicians, athletes, chefs, lawyers, like my daughter, um, you know, and when I think of my daughter too, like, my mother could not even go to university because of the Indian Act. She couldn't even hire a lawyer because of the Indian Act. Mm -hmm. And now her granddaughter is a lawyer. Wow. And so, you know, let's look at all those successes and let's stop saying, please, church, let's stop saying, what can I do for Indigenous people? Mm -hmm. Let's stop saying that. And let's start saying, what can I learn from Indigenous people? We're not a problem to be solved right and so i think that if we could all just start saying reconciliation starts with me it would really take us further that we get um to places um that we haven't been before and you know i think of malachi 111 and it says um my name will be great 
among all the nations from as long as the sun rises and the sun sets. And then in Revelation 7, 9, it says that there'll be every tribe, every language, every culture, um, uh, all around the throne. Mm. So these are we're that the Bible says we're all inclusive. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we're saying, oh, we're, we, we see that we're diverse. We include you. But the word that we should tack on that is belonging, mm-hmm. diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And so I don't know. Those are just some tips that, you know, to help us to get started within that. And, you know, that we may as a church respond differently and don't look at us as a mission field, look at us as your neighbors. Um, And a lot of us have, you know, had, um, you know, some struggles. We may be in the fallout from that, Mm -hmm. from the effect of that. And let's have compassion for that. A lot of our communities are in poverty. There's 634 First Nations in Canada, and about 600 of them are in third world conditions. And, you know, maybe we have the same compassion for other, you know, underdeveloped countries that that we have in Canada. And often we see a situation of poverty. And we go, oh, you know, like, go mm-hmm. get a job or go to school. But poverty has a stranglehold. You really, it takes a hard time. You know, it takes a lot to get out of it. And we may not have the resources. We may not have internet or the devices mm-hmm. or, you know, gas money to go get that. And if if your family's in poverty, there's probably, you know, crisis at home. It's a triage. You need to, you know, deal with that first. Mm-hmm. And so... I think that, you know, we need to start looking more with compassion, as the Bible instructs us with love, mm-hmm. praying for shalom. Mm. That's my word right now for, you know, peace, wellness, blessings. Mm. May Indigenous people see God who he really is and not how it's been presented by the professor. Mm-hmm. No, and that's, I mean, that's, shalom is one of my favorite words in, in scripture. So, yes. What does it mean to you? So, well, it's interesting for me that you bring it up, the, the word shalom, because it often gets translated peace, right? That, that is a, a pretty common translation of it. But as is often the case, and I don't need to tell you this, but, but culture uses words. And when we translate them into another culture, you might go, well, yeah, okay, that word kind of does that mean that, but what the word means in this to this group of people and what the word means to this group of people can be still very different things. So we tend to hear peace, you know, in 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 my context, you know, peace is no fighting, uh, you know, everybody's kind of tolerating each other. You know, I I grew up in Scotland where we had quite a lot of displaced uh, Protestants as a result of the Northern Ireland uh, Catholic Protestant tension. So peace was often about just not bombing each other and, and, and not, you know, having terrorism. In the Hebrew Bible, shalom is the notion of wholeness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I really love that, which of course has to include Western notions of peace. But if you actually look at how the Bible talks about shalom, you see it translated as prosperity, you see it translated as peace. But I think one of the closest references to the Hebrew notion is this idea of wholeness, a place where there is no division anymore, where everything is as it should be. Um, And so in this conversation, the idea of shalom to me is a beautiful belief, a beautiful hopefulness to say, actually, what would it look like and, and I think this is the question that the, the, the prophetic call of scripture calls us to, is to look at any space and say, what does wholeness look like here? Um, mm-hmm. the, the text that for me is one of these texts I can't get away from as one of the pastors at Westside is Jeremiah 29, 7, where this group of people are instructed and they are, they are essentially settlers. Well, they're not quite settlers. They're, they're, they're exiles in a foreign, in a foreign land. And God calls them to seek the wholeness, the shalom of the city where they are. And so I find myself often thinking that, that our, our call of the church is to say, what does wholeness look like here? And, and sometimes the only way to find that wholeness is to start asking questions. It's, where, is, where is their brokenness? Where, and how have things been broken? And how, have, uh, how are things to be put right again? And, and I think there's a tendency 
I, I, you know, I've, I've said it to you privately before. I think people might know this. But I come from a missionary kid background. And so I've yeah. seen the effect of missionaries going to other countries and assuming that they can arrive with all of the solutions. So, you know, if, if, if I can put a little bit of a, a, a crass point on it, but I, I grew up in a culture where it was, hey, hey, the white people are here. Now everything's going to be OK. <laughs> right? And and of course, actually, quite often what happened was everything was worse as a result of just cultural deafness, uh, just, you know, you know, inconsistent understandings of what's going on. So I find there's something beautiful in the notion of listening, of actually spending time, even as the church and being brave enough, and perhaps is it humble enough to assume that we don't have the answers and maybe nobody's asking us for the answers, but rather, you know, what does it look like to, to become neighbors? What does it look like to, to, to see wholeness in, in that sense? Because I love what you said that, that if we perceive, you know, as, as somebody who now lives in Canada, if I perceive my indigenous neighbor as somebody that I need to fix or a problem that I need to solve, then I'm not treating them in a neighborly way, but actually I've gone back to the problem that maybe got us into this situation in the first place was, was perceiving not that relationship of dependency that started in the early days, as you say, but rather this new and unhealthy uh, relationship. So goodness is it's, it's, you know, (laughs) it's one of these things that I find so heavy and what often happens, I think when it comes to heavy things and things where perhaps apologies are needed to be made that, that we have a tendency, at least this has been my experience. So please correct me if I'm, if I'm, wrong, but my experience seems to be that what happens to us is that when something seems big and we don't know what to do, it's easier for us to run away from it and just pretend that there's not anything there and almost ignore. Saying when in doubt, throw it out. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's what the church does. You're like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, we're not sure about that. Oh, when in doubt, throw it out. Right. Instead of going that, that might be, you know, a, a blessing to our our people or a blessing mm. to our congregation or you know we can learn from this we can mm. listen we can build relationship yes and i think that's i think that's that's quite that's quite something to to think about because it's a change and this is for me this is quite important for us as a church that we've we've chosen to to think a lot more about this word justice these days and i think that I think it's really important that we we hold on to this word because there's a tendency um, to to utilize this word mission very often. And mission has a lot of baggage attached to it as a word. And it implies this almost subtle, I was talking to somebody from our congregation recently, you know, who was saying, it sounds quite colonial, actually, we're going to go from where we are to somewhere else with all of the answers and show you how to do things. Whereas this question of justice seems to rest on this notion of shalom and said actually is that what is right you know what you know and i love that in in micah 6 8 you know that god wants us to do what is right uh, and of course sometimes doing what is right involves apologizing for what was wrong <laughs> involves you know seeking to correct the injustices that have happened um so where where let me let me ask you some of the questions then so how what's your sort of advice for for those of us then on an individual level um because i i think you know you and i have talked holly uh, about the challenges of of trying to 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 live out you know your faith and and your authenticity as an indigenous woman you encounter you know you've talked to me about encountering microaggressions on a regular basis you know where uh i mean do you want to talk about that is that something you could help us with because even sometimes when people in with quote unquote good intentions their way of framing it can actually be hugely unhelpful sometimes can't it yeah and i love this and i love the whole conversation that you had in the church and you've addressed this a lot and you know racism is an uncomfortable conversation because mm-hmm. it almost feels like your goodness is being attacked when you're mm-hmm. and even a racist will say i'm not racist because i'm not wearing a white hood right mm-hmm. and yeah. so you know what you know you and i have talked about authors that we liked and you know i i i like the phrase from abram x can it x what, uh, kendry yes 
uh, him, um, <laughs> where he says, um, let's be actively anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And I love that notion. And I love to be a student of this because I realize that, you know, I have to learn too. even though I do anti-racism work, I want to learn. So I have journals, I write notes, I listen to, um, you know, panels and podcasts and audiobooks, and um, And, you know, there is some words that are abrasive that a lot of people don't like to receive. Like there's even leaders in Canada that have said there's no systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we break it down, there there is systems in place in Canada that were for Indigenous people. Read the Indian Act. That was a system that was in place. The taking the children, it was a law. If you're an Indian child aged six to 16, for you, it was mandatory by law for you to attend Indian residential school. That was a system that was in place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and the other word that's really hard is when people talk about white privilege mm-hmm. and people go, well, I'm not privileged. You know, my family came over and we worked really hard and, you know, to where we're at now. And I'm like, that's class privilege. We're talking about color of skin privilege, because unless you're like black or brown, like black and brown people always um, or black and indigenous people always stand in solidarity because of colonial structures. So we have the acronym BIPOC. And so we experience things because of the color of our skin, like, you know, being followed around in a store, being Mm. refused, you know, walking into a restaurant, can we have a table for four? And they're like, we have no room when clearly there's room. Um, Mm. If you have an indigenous sounding last name, you doctor it up so you can get a job or a hotel reservation or a car rental. Um, You know, there's even things like microaggressions. And I asked some friends, what are those? Cause these are like not overt, you -hmm. know, forms of racism. And it was so funny because we all agree on this. And this happens to me regularly where people say to me, you know, you don't look like, sound like, act like, whatever like, live like Mm -hmm. an indigenous woman. And it's almost like, are you trying to compliment me? Because it's really dissing me and my people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think that we have to like, look at that. And now is the time there's so much out there. Um, I think that because we were all shut down at home, mm-hmm. we we're all glued to the news during the pandemic. And um, we all witnessed the knee on the neck of George Floyd. And then Black Lives Matter and all everything that erupted from that. And, and I think that, you know, it was really challenging for us, but at the same time, we keep getting reminded over and over again. And, and you know, when the 215 children were found at Kamloops, I think that there was a shift. And there's been other, in the same week, there was other graveyards that were found, yeah. <clears throat> burials, not graveyards, burial sites, uh, unmarked graves of children in residential mm-hmm. schools that were found since then that weren't like that big in the news, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can all relate. We're all parents or aunties or mm-hmm. friends. And, you know, we can't imagine what those children went through. Um, and not just the children that died, which is so sad to me, they didn't have a mother comforting them, mm-hmm. a daddy comforting them, whatever they went through. But also think of the children that were left, that Mm. watched, that saw, that probably had to dig those graves, right? Mm. And so what about those children? And I think that there was a national grief Mm. that when we saw that, and I think that we need to start having a shift. Now is a time. We've all, something woke up in all of us. Um, and I think that now is the time and, you know, just start doing our work, just start Mm -hmm. praying, just, um, you know, start studying scriptures like, um, pastor, what's the the scripture from Amos where it says, um, you know, where God's saying, you know what I want, you know Mm -hmm. what all I want, I want justice. Yes, the you put me on the spot to remember a verse. (laughs) You know what up I had? Anyways, I want, let's paraphrase rivers of mercy oceans of justice right and so that's what he wants and that's what we should want and you know like even for me having this conversation with you we're doing it Mm -hmm. 
this is what we're doing. And I'm so proud of you for inviting me in. And for, you know, we didn't have any agenda. We were just like, I was like, hey, what, what questions are you asking me? Like, what are we talking about? And you're like, let's just see. And I'm just like, okay, this is scary, but fun and <laughs> privilege. You know, and I'm really proud of you for that. And, well, and I think that the church just, just keep going. Mm-hmm. It's just keep going. You know, there's no solutions other than, you know, everybody just doing their own work. Yes and doing their own shifts let's just change how we how we respond and and i appreciate because i always feel slightly apprehensive if i'm off if if i'm honest holly is that you know when you talk about like systemic racism and privilege there's even a sense where i feel sometimes like like the white guy going well now it's your job holly to help me understand what i should be doing better <laughs> and so i still exerting my and I, I please hope it never comes across that way because genuinely for me it's been a journey of wanting to learn and understand but i i really appreciated how you explained it there because i think i think for many of us you know we're aware that there's systemic racism but then we might encounter people who want to deny that and you find yourself struggling. Well, how do I explain that? How do I, I point that out? And I think what you've even given to us there is, is some really clear, you know, well, if there's a system and the system doesn't treat people equally, then that's systemic racism. And, and uh, it, you know, that, like for me, that, that, that was, I don't know if any of our other listeners found that, but I just thought, wow, that's really clear way to, if you can point at a government act that says, we're not going to treat everybody the same based on the color of their skin or based on where they were born or based on the family they were born into, then we're, we're in a system of, of, of systemic problems aren't we in that sense and and i think these words are important to to disempower at some level because they've become toxic words for certain people so we hear you know i think i think sometimes as a as a white person i hear about white privilege and there's a sense in which people want to defend that you know and, and exactly as you said, no, no 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 that's not true and the learning process of how do i be quiet in that and just to appreciate you know, I, I've been talking to friends recently, um, you know, friends in Calgary, uh, you know, you know, black friends of mine in Calgary and their experience of being stopped by the police and what goes through their mind at a police stop. And my experience of being stopped by the police are completely different things. And, 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 and they're, what they're worried about versus what I'm worried about are, are entirely different. And, and so for me being it always sounds terrible to say, use the word humble about yourself, but I have to humble myself and listen at this stage because I have to understand that my own experiences don't relate to the experiences of black brothers and sisters, indigenous brothers and sisters who who would say, yeah, no, this is real for us. This is a different sequence of, of, of things to be concerned about. Uh, so I really appreciate the way that you, you, you shared that and encourage us to think about, about justice and encourage us to think about about where about where we position ourselves in that and, and how we learn to listen uh, as 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 Jesus followers and, and you know because I believe that the Bible calls us to this sort of work uh, it, it's even it's even interesting how often in Jesus's ministry listening is such a primary part of the ministry of Jesus but people don't you don't hear it preached about very often it's even interesting that Jesus encounters people who are sick and he asks them, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and, uh, and, and just, yeah. you know, and I've even heard preachers say, well, this is a ridiculous question from Jesus. Of course he knows what he needs to do for this person, but the power of Jesus himself saying, no, no, I'm here to listen first. You tell me what it is that you, that, that, you know, that, that you need in that sense. I think there's something beautiful about that. He's so cool. I mean, I love him. He's just, <laughs> he's, yeah, we learn constantly from him how we are to be, you know, mm. and uh, and I get great comfort thinking that Jesus was brown, mm. right? And so yes. like, he's like one of us. And so um, I just, I'm really, you know, hopeful of that. Mm. And I think, you know, I, there's, I, I belong to an organization called the North America Institute of Indigenous Indigenous Theologians. They're all oh, wow. Indigenous people who are PhDs, and we have these conversations. They're they're 
like you and Rich, they're super smart and theologians. Mm -hmm. And I'm just along for this beautiful journey with them. And I'm on the board. And we have these great conversations about, um, you know, being an Indigenous person mm -hmm. and, you know, how we can help other people um, journey with us. And you said it exactly right. It's listening. Mm -hmm. It's listening. So, you know, that listening and learning is really a huge thing. It's really the key. Holly, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We're, we really are appreciative of it this evening. I know I have, I knew I was going to enjoy being uh, in a conversation with you. Uh, so I'm not surprised, but I'm sure that everybody else has, has thoroughly appreciated it as, as well. So thank you so, so much. It's the biggest honor for me to um, have a friendship with you, that you're my pastor, and that I've been waiting my entire Christian life for this. And so I am here for you. And uh, let's journey this together. And, and I can't wait to see you in church. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I want to say thank you for everybody that's listening. I just really appreciate it more than you'll ever know for watching, listening, and um, 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 maybe we can put like my website or my mom's, mm -hmm. I did a documentary on my mom's residential school story. Um, and, you know, I do have an online training an indigenous awareness training through my website. Um, and maybe we can put some books or whatever, maybe like just some support and um, resources for people. I love that. Well, anything you send over to me, Holly, we will put in the show notes for the podcast, and then we'll also email it to everyone that was registered for at the seminar uh, this evening as well so that we can connect with that. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.